Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, and I'm here with Ben, LaShawn, Linda, Sully, Will, and a special guest who will be introduced later. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. The outbreak of COVID-19 will have a long-term and profound impact on our physical health and mental well-being in a variety of ways. A commentary published by Bei Wu in the Global Health Research and Policy Journal titled Social Isolation and Loneliness Among Older Adults in the Context of COVID-19 a global challenge, outlines some of the negative outcomes associated with social isolation and loneliness, as well as some potential strategies that can be implemented to address these issues. In this episode, we'll be exploring the broader issue of social isolation and loneliness as a determinant of health, hence a potential public health interventions to address an emerging crisis that has been dubbed the loneliness epidemic by Dr. Vivek Murthy, the, formal, the former Surgeon General for the United States. To discuss this important public health issue, we've invited a special guest. She's a public health analyst in the Office of Health Equity at the Health Resources and Services Administration under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She holds both a doctorate in public health education and Master of Public Health from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale and a bachelor's degree in sociology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She completed her postdoctoral studies and received certification in global health through Harvard University and is also trained in unconscious bias. Her major research interests include social determinants of health, global health inequalities and disparities, health literacy, tobacco cessation, women's health, immigrant health, and social justice issues related to race, ethnicity, nationality, and education. Her research highlights optimal health outcomes for marginalized populations remain primary public health concerns. Please welcome Dr. Mareta Germay. Welcome. welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. One, one thing I'm curious about, um, training unconscious bias. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've always been interested in the topic and, of course, throughout public health education have been exposed to um, what unconscious bias actually means and how it can be um, reflected in the work that we do. Um, and it wasn't until I began my research on international graduate students for my dissertation that I realized the impact of unconscious bias and, and again, how it can inform and impact our work. And so I just thought about, you know, what can I do to sort of further my education and training um, so that it can, you know, inform and steer my research efforts as well. So I just pursued um, an extra sort of certification around um, unconscious bias. Awesome. And then that's, that's why we brought you on for your expertise on the topic of uh, social isolation and loneliness. So as is customary on our podcast, we start by defining the issues we're going to be discussing, which are social isolation and loneliness. And I want to get your take on 
you know, how, you know, these terms are used interchangeably a lot in public discourse and the, the literature, but how are they similar and how are they different? Put simply, social isolation is the lack of social connections. You know, it's an, an objective measure um, of the number of contacts that people have. And um, it's typically categorized by whether an individual belongs to a social network. Um, loneliness, however, is a subjective feeling. Um, and it's about the gap between a person's desired level of social contact and then their actual level of social contact. And it's essentially the feeling of being alone, you know, regardless of the amount of social contact. And it can refer to um, the perception that one's intimate and social needs are not being met. And it's centered, you know, essentially around the perceived quality of the person's relationships. So, um, there are some stark differences, and you know, like you mentioned, oftentimes we use the terms interchangeably, and, and to a certain extent, that's okay, um, it's acceptable. But um, there are some differences, right? So, you know, social isolation can can lead to loneliness in some people, while others can feel lonely mm. without being socially isolated. And it's important to note that you know, people can be isolated, like physically alone, you know, actually alone, and mm. not feel lonely. So it really just differs from person to person. And so we have to treat it that way as well. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of examples actually where people who are partners or have like a lifelong partnership um, living in the same household. I've seen cases where, you know, some of those in those sample populations experience higher rates of, of loneliness than people um, that are living alone. So it goes to the point that you're mentioning that it's not as, you know, you talked about um, loneliness being more subjective and then um, social isolation being a more objective measure of the, you know, the quality and the, the numeracy of those, uh, you know, social contacts. Yeah. And we can see that, uh, you know, it, it's not simply being with someone. It's just, it's how meaningful that connection is to you in the present, right? Yeah, that's absolutely it. That's, that's essentially what, what we're trying to capture is that it's not about the quantity, it's the quality. It's the, you know, the fact of um, having people in place mm-hmm a camaraderie that's built, you know, and sustained right. and, um, mm. yeah, and it's meaningful so that you can count on them, you know, not only during the bad times, but the good times. And um, so it's, you know, yeah, that's the, that's the key with social isolation and loneliness. We try to address it oftentimes with, you know, just saying increase the quantity of your social network, but it's not that, it's the quality of it. Is it meaningful? Yeah. Mm. So I have a question regarding, um, it's, it's kind of a, more of the specifics of social isolation. Okay. And as you said, it is more of an objective measurement, right, of the number of individuals that you have in your social network. Yeah. But I'm just kind of curious, is there kind of like a like a number that's you typically used as like mm. a cutoff and anything oh maybe over that or under that would be considered is the individual being considered socially isolated or not isolated or does this kind of differ from person to person right, or context specific? Yeah, that's a good question. And so there, there's not much research that, at least that I've seen, that would lend itself to, um, I guess, practitioners being able to say, if you have this number of friends or social connections, then you won't be considered socially isolated. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, because I think, again, just like you mentioned, it is, you know, you take this on a case-by-case basis. And some people are, are just fine with having, you know, two quality friends or family members, mm-hmm. loved ones, you know, and they're during moments, you know, where they're suffering in silence or where they just need extra support. But then there's others that require, uh, you know, more of a social network and a larger social network. And so I think it just depends on the person. 
Um, and so that's why sometimes it's, it's very difficult to just sort of use the umbrella term of, okay, you're socially isolated if you, you know, only have one friend or two friends, two friends. For some people, mm -hmm. that's just enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just enough. Right. So mm -hmm. you can be socially isolated, but not lonely. But not lonely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this jumps um, or it dives into, I guess, the different types of loneliness because, Maretta, like you were saying, someone could have a few close contacts and that's enough for them. But someone else who has that is still feeling lonely. And um, there's research showing that there are different types of loneliness. And so things like intimate loneliness or relational or collective. And so mm -hmm. maybe for someone, intimate loneliness or having an intimate partner is not enough. They need that more collective sense of community as well. So mm. um Yeah, it's interesting to really dive in. That was just a very good point. When when I looked at the international graduate students for my research, there was two types of loneliness that particularly stood out, which was personal loneliness. You know, simply, it just occurs, you know, when you have um, a loss of contact with family and friends. And then the other mm -hmm. um, type of loneliness for them was social loneliness, just simply due to the loss of social networks. So like you said, there's just so many different type of, types of loneliness that can, can manifest. Yeah. So that was a good point. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so my question was, um, would, in your research, did you find any nuances or risk factors for individuals who are different on the spectrum between int introverted or extroverted? So, for example, the research says, you know, introverted people are more likely to value smaller social circles that have more meaningful connections to them versus extroverted would, would focus on the quantity. So I was wondering if your research had any uh, take on that. Yeah. So... My research in particular, I just went in to, to be honest, to explore the experiences, the acculturative experiences of international graduate students to the U.S., to the, you know, to the host university, to their respective academic programs. And, and then what came from that, you know, um, from that research was, you know, the participants, all of them sharing that they had mm -hmm. experienced some form of social isolation. Um, and like you said, it, it is dependent. A lot of it was um, I found differences between Uh, the male participants and the female participants. Some of the males were okay with not talking to their family that lives abroad, right? Um, where the female participants, um, they value just a, a bit more that, that connection and talking to their parents every day and their siblings every day. So I did find some there. And then, you know, but, but all of them, like I mentioned, all of the participants explained that, especially during their period of initial arrival, they experienced um, these pronounced feelings around um, social isolation and loneliness. Mm. So within my research, you know, to answer your question, I, for me, what I, what I experienced and learned through, through their experiences was that, um, of course, different types of loneliness can manifest like we talked about, but it did differ just according to personality, like you mentioned, um, but yeah. also, um, like I said, the male participants and female participants, there were some differences there as well. Yeah, that's very interesting because, you know, in public health, you study health outcomes and stuff at the, the population level. But it doesn't mean then when you identify something like loneliness, it doesn't mean then that the solution will be a blanket solution. It has to be tailored to the individuals experiencing loneliness. Right, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It was a great discussion. Um, but I wanted to bring us um, to loneliness as a social determinant of health. Yeah, so I just wanted to do a bit of a, um, a thought experiment. So... We know that resilience and social supports are important for um, health and well-being overall. And we know that uh, many different populations, including 
um, seniors, and I want to highlight seniors, especially since many of them have died alone um, in hospitals or even long-term care homes or assisted living facilities. Um, So with all this information that we have about social connectedness being kind of a protective determinant of health, do you think that the mortality rate that we're seeing, you know, for seniors uh, living this COVID-19 pandemic was at all influenced by the, you know, the prevalence of loneliness that existed before the pandemic? Philosophical question. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. but it's it's a very good question. Um, Yeah, I think the senior population, you know, they face just in general, greater risks, you know, of living alone and, and chronic illness. So it's not shocking that their rates have been what they've been, you know. Um, and and unfortunately, you know, with with the crisis that we're dealing with, you know, and family members being unable to, to be with their loved ones at times, I mean, it just sort of adds to that feeling of loneliness and social isolation. So, you know, older adults already have, you know, typically smaller social networks and are prone to loneliness, you know, and um, it's even if they're home, um, you know, it can affect their physical health, you know, in other ways, too, with the elderly feeling, um, you know, less motivated sometimes, and and especially relative to, you know, eating healthy and, and working out. And for some, you know, even with medication management and control, you know, so I think it's just important that we, first of all, it's good that we're highlighting this true public health issue. Um, but I, I, I hope mm-hmm. that people, when they're hearing about physically distancing, you know, when you have a loved one that may be a senior or adult population, it's important that we, yes, physically distance to help mitigate transmission, but that we are not socially distancing, you know, that we, mm-hmm. yeah, because we know that there's a strong link and connection to mental health outcomes. And so, um, you know, again, it's not surprising that it's affecting the senior population the way that it is, but there's certainly things that we can do to help with that. Right. And I, I think with your question, Gordon, it brings to mind for me, at least, it's like thinking about um, what's been going on lately with COVID-19. So uh, let's just say since, at least in North America, since maybe early or late January, March till now, how many months has it been? Um, five, six months, maybe? I'm, I'm kind of yeah. curious, and, and in the literature, it talks a lot about chronic loneliness. So what exactly would that period entail? Would six months um, be at the point where you would see kind of these differences in kind of mortality rates that could be attributed to loneliness? And um, going back to that, the difference between chronic loneliness and just loneliness as um, just a biological kind of drive, it should be mentioned that loneliness um, has had a purpose in terms of our biology. And I think it's embedded into us as well for certain beneficial aspects. Yeah. Right. So like loneliness um, in, in the acute sense kind of motivates you to seek out social connections mm-hmm. to kind of quell that loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, we're instinct instinctively, we're not wired to be alone, right? We, mm-hmm. we value the company of other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, to that point, it's also important um as a point of caution that when we talk about loneliness, like for example, there was um, a meta-analysis published where um, people who self-reported experiencing uh, loneliness were, I think, 26% more likely to die from all causes, right? So um, the important thing here when we talk about, you know, studies in public health is that um, it's an association that is not necessarily kind of an independent variable. And what I mean by that is... Loneliness might be also associated with other 
um, risk factors mm-hmm. that you know increase premature mor- mortality. And the research is kind of muddy on how much of a role loneliness in of itself plays mm-hmm. in exacerbating these these uh, negative outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we think of um, loneliness and, and isolation. You know, both of those terms, and we think about the mental health implications, right? And and it, mm-hmm. but we don't think about the physical and. And, um, right. you know, again, it wasn't until I performed my own research that I realized just how, um, what types of effects it can have physically. So, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm excited that there's research that's coming out. It's unfortunate that, that this is the case, but it's good that it's being magnified in such a bright light right now. And that that's a perfect segue into what I was going to say next, because um, <laughs> some some of those, you know, the the mental health side of it you talk about even things like um risk of you know suicide but then you can also talk about the direct physiological responses that you know in, involve like uh the stress response and inflammatory response right yeah. and you know we know when the body's experiencing chronic stress it affects things like um you know sleep quality um it affects you know your blood pressure and your risk of you know cardiovascular diseases so the research does show, though, um, despite the caution I just made, that loneliness is associated with a, a variety of physical health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's there's research that's shown that, um, you know, social isolation and loneliness, you know, are linked to higher risks for a, a variety of physical and mental, you know, conditions. So, um, it includes high blood pressure, heart disease, um, a weakened immune system, um, obesity, anxiety, depression, you know, Alzheimer's disease, um, cognitive decline, you know, and, and even death. So, you know, it's, mm. yeah, so it's important that we look at it, you know, and, and look at it, you know, how it can manifest itself, you know, both physically and mentally. And, you know, research shows that, um, you know, isolated individuals who report, you know, frequent, these frequent feelings of loneliness, they suffer higher rates of morbidity, mortality, um, depression, infection and, and you know like i mentioned cognitive decline and and simply you know a reduction in lifespan so mm-hmm. it's right. yeah so it's important again that we're just that we're paying attention to how it's you know how the potential of its impacts yeah and one thing i guess for mm-hmm. me that's and you would know more because this is your area of expertise in research it's it's kind of hard to tease out even things you know like obesity you know is it that social connections make it more likely for you to engage in you know, physical activity, and then hence reduces your risk of obesity? Or is it work in a more direct mechanism where it changes your physiology in a way that predisposes you to be obese or have things like, you know, other chronic conditions like heart disease? I I think just for me doing the research, I found it frustrating that you kind of end up with more questions and answers about loneliness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I think let's so you know, talking and diving a little deeper into the obesity, um, I I think why social connection is so important in that capacity is because um, similar to what we were mentioning about the elderly population, if you have someone that sort of motivates you, you know, to work out and to be more physically active and to eat well and to take your medication, if that's the case, then you have a greater chance of obviously being healthy. But um, without that, devoid of that, you run the risk of facing these health challenges. And so, you know, for someone that relied on their social network, maybe they walked together or they ran together daily, um, you know, because we've had these mandates in place, 
um, to, again, to help with the mitigation of, of the transmission, to help mitigate transmission, it's, um, it can be very, be a, certainly challenging for them to continue on their workout plan, you know, let's say, or their, um, their diet, whatever it may be. So it can impact them in that way. And then in turn, you know, subsequently, you know, their weight increases, um, which puts them at risk for other health, you know, health issues. That's a good point. And I'm glad there's um, people like you out there trying to kind of deepen the scientific community's understanding of these issues. Because um, for one thing that, that you mentioned earlier in the discussion, even the, the problem of you know loneliness and social isolation, maybe historically being used interchangeably, makes it hard to kind of track these indicators over time. You know, if there was a different definition being used in the 90s and the early 2000s, and it's kind of hard to say, well, loneliness has increased by 10% in the last 20 years because you're not using the same uh, measurements, right? So I think it's important um, from what you're saying too to kind of have these things, you know, while in a colloquial kind of discussion, you might use these terms interchangeably. It's important that people also even understand the differences between the two, even though the end result is often quite related. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can help, you know, the distinction is important, especially in regards to, um, you know, research efforts and focus and how it can um, perhaps subsequently inform policy changes even, right? And how practitioners may seek to um, address these issues. Since, you know, we know that addressing social isolation and loneliness can't only involve, like we mentioned earlier, simply promoting an increase in an individual's like social circle, right? you know, to help combat feelings of loneliness or isolation. But we should instead, um, at least that's what research is showing, you know, focus efforts on individuals establishing and maintaining those meaningful relationships that we talked about earlier. Yeah, because normally you hear things like loneliness and it's kind of just passed off as it's subjective. It's, it's you know, not as impactful as, mm-hmm. as, you know, the way you eat, for example. But actually, it has very significant physical impacts. And to mm-hmm. me, it was surprising because we've come so far in medicine, there's a medication for almost everything. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, still an important factor that we often miss is how meaningful are your social interactions. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good point too, Linda, because I was even reading too that being socially isolated and lonely if you experience those things, it doesn't mean that you're clinically experiencing anxiety or depression. So it's it's a separate yeah. thing, right? So it's like you couldn't use a medication to treat depression in, in order to treat loneliness in a sense. So And there's really also not an agreed upon um, point, you know, where acute emotions of loneliness transition into like a chronic issue, you know, producing long-term consequences. So yeah, I mean, it's still very you know, it's a challenging um, issue to sort of define and classify. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because um, we're talking about research, we're talking about the subjectivity when it comes to loneliness specifically. Um, there have been kind of scales developed to kind of maybe standardize uh, that effort to measure loneliness. So, for example, um, there is something called the three-scale loneliness scale developed by the UCLA. And I'll just list off a couple of the questions. There's three of them. So the first question asks, how often do you feel that you lack companionship? And then the options are hardly ever, some of the time, or often. The second question is, how often do you feel left out? Hardly ever, some of the time, or often. And the last question is, how often do you feel isolated from others? Is it hardly ever, some of the time, or often? So when you, for example, use one of these scales, there are 
often some limitations that come along with it, right? If you're doing this assessment, for example, at a physician's office or at, for a research study, your first limitation would be that that's a snapshot of your perceived level of loneliness at that particular time of the day you're taking the test, right? And then we know that loneliness can change over time. So when you have these measures for a research study, how, do you, how can you compare people that score a certain number on that scale, uh, like a four on the scale versus an eight on the scale? It doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're double as lonely as another person, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that we have to consider. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, and it's, it's sort of like a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. Like at that moment, I, you know, one of us can be feeling, you know, lonely, but you can ask the same question a day later or two days later and we're, we're not feeling lonely. You know, mm-hmm. we're not feeling isolated. We do feel a part of a social circle mm-hmm. and we feel connected. Um, and so, yeah, it's really hard to sort of capture and say this person is feeling or is and classifying them as socially isolated or lonely. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.